When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, Anakin Solo and his friend Tahiri find themselves on the run from the Peace Brigade, while Luke and Mara are forced to flee Coruscant by a New Republic government teetering on the brink of chaos. It's Edge of Victory 2, Rebirth, by Greg Keyes. And joining me to talk about the story is my buddy Matt from the Davos Fingers podcast. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate you having me back on my favorite podcast. Uh, and I think I speak for all of us loungers when I say, thanks for keeping the legend alive, man. Thank you. Well, Rebirth is the eighth book in the New Jedi Order series. So we are closing in on the halfway point. Matt, how have you experienced the story? We know that you have read it in the past. But your big overview of the story up to this point. Uh, you know, in a world where we have streaming series versus movies, you know, and, and you, a lot of the critique about a movie these days is they don't take enough time to really dig into the story and into the characters. Man, I'm loving the New Jedi Order series. And, you know, 19 books feels like so much to bite off. But when you have this amount of characters in this big of a galaxy, it is so nice to take it slow. Just take it slow, book by book. And uh, I'm really digging it. And 19 books is a lot to do in our timeline of what I think for the show here, we're doing it in about eight and a half months, Whew. nine months. So two books a month. Yeah, I was just talking to one of your other guest hosts, my buddy Scott from the Davos Fingers podcast. And we were talking about that if you miss, you know, a week of reading in our new Jedi reading series, you got a lot of catching up to do. So aggressive, but fun. It doesn't give me an opportunity to forget much. Well, we'll get to Rebirth here in a few minutes. But first, it's listener question time. We have two questions today. The first comes from Robin in Germany who wrote a very nice email, but I had to cut it down a little bit for the show. Robin says, My favorite character in Star Wars is the Jedi Master Joris Sabayoth from Heir to the Empire and his origin, Outbound Flight. Now this is a surprise to most people because both Master Sabayoths are not very nice. One is full of himself and the other is even worse. One thinks he's a powerful, wise Jedi. The other thinks he's a god. However, I think there's potential here. Sabayoth was a powerful Jedi Master who had a good relationship with Senator Palpatine and young Anakin Skywalker. He sounds like a gray Jedi who goes the Dooku way, corrupted by the Republic and his own pride. 
And the crazy clone Sabaoth? Nobody teaches him the way of the Jedi. He was doomed from birth, driven insane by mad science, and he's clearly used by Thrawn. It's very twisting to see him go down the deep end like a primeval version of a vengeful spirit. What are your thoughts? Well, thank you very much for the email, Robin, and thank you for listening to the show. Matt, Robin's a big fan of Joris Sabayoth. What do you think about the character, either from the Outbound Flight book or the Heir to the Empire trilogy, or both? I can't say I'm a huge fan of old Sabayoth. Uh, I can't say I don't like him either. Sabayoth is one of the first Jedi, as we see in Outbound Flight, at least, of him and his non-clone self, uh, of of that type of Jedi that made us think that there's someone different from the Obi-Wans and the Yodas of the world. Someone who had significant character flaws, um, such as their pride, but who still was driven by a motivating goodness. Uh, so I think that Sabayoth is a fascinating character. I look, went back and looked at when Outbound Flight was written. It was 2006. It was a later Legends book. I, I don't remember it being that late. Uh, but I love that Timothy Zahn had some time to really chew on that character of Joris Sabayoth uh, and really come up with a well-written, as Robin said, kind of a gray character who showed us that Jedi can have flaws. Um, and I think that... Maybe other writers used, perhaps used Sabayoth as a template as we started to see more gray Jedi coming into the fold. What about you, Aaron? Well, the first thing, Robin, I have to say, I love that you love Joris Sabayoth. I think you're the first person I've ever heard Easily. who said that's your favorite character. Yeah. You know, Joris Sabayoth does not, let's face it, he does not have many friends, or I shouldn't say friends, many fans in... The Legends community. I agree with most of what you said, Matt, that it's a look at how flawed a Jedi could become when they start to consider the power that is at their fingertips. Hmm. One that hasn't fully fallen to the dark side of the Force, at least back in Outbound Flight, but is kind of teetering there on the edge someone who is supremely confident in their decision making and I think that is one of the things that may rub some fans the wrong way that Joris Sabayoth basically just makes decisions for everyone and because he is a Jedi master he's just confident that his decisions are always the correct one Sure, and doesn't give other characters the agency to make their own decisions. As for the clone, Jerus, with the extra U, Sabayoth, I don't really have much of an opinion on the clone Sabayoth other than, I don't know, to me he just kind of seemed like Emperor Palpatine light in <laughs> Heir of the Empire. That he was this bad guy who wanted to corrupt other Force users into being his apprentice, but he didn't have the mental capacity and the strategic planning 
that Palpatine did. Right. Which almost made him a little scarier. But... Yeah, because he was insane. Yeah, you never knew when he was going to fly off the handle. Well said. Be honest, Aaron. Back when you first read Heir to the Empire, how did you pronounce Sabaoth? Sabaoth. Sabaoth? I did. That's s- how I pronounced it. Sabaoth. Sabaoth. So, okay. Cool. Yeah. I believe it was someone in, I think it was his latest 2017 before someone asked Zahn at a convention directly how you pronounced it. Uh huh. And Zahn said that he pronounced it Sabayoth. Yeah. And he's so. expressed some regret for making it so difficult to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. You figure there would be a vowel somewhere between the C and the B, and the B. in order to get the Sabayoth uh-huh. part. Anyways. Well, thank you very much for the email, Robin. Matt, would you please read today's second email? Happily. This one's from John in Alaska. He says, I love the show. My question is in regards to the upcoming Ahsoka series. Which version of Thrawn are we most likely to see in the show? Legends or canon? What would you prefer? Do you think some of the dark side users in the trailer may be characters of Star Wars Legends? Aaron, what do you think? Well, to answer your second question first... John, I believe the two dark side users that we at least see in the teaser and the full trailer are brand new characters. The one's name is Skull, and the other was Jin, I believe, hmm. um, or something close to that. It makes it sound like they are fallen Jedi from what little we know of them at this point, that Skull at least was a member of the Jedi Order at one point. And that um, the younger female character is his apprentice now. So I don't think those are characters from Legends. To answer your question about which characterization of Thrawn we'll get, I think we're going to get some sort of combination of the Thrawn characterization from Heir to the Empire and Rebels, where Thrawn was clearly a villain in those stories. And the Thrawn that Zahn wrote in other Legends stories, and then the two canon book trilogies that we have now, to where Thrawn's not really good or bad. Thrawn is... He's not Sherlock Holmes, you know, I mean, he's as smart as Sherlock Holmes, and he uses his deductive powers as Sherlock Holmes. But Thrawn also will choose to do, I would say, evil things for the good of the Chiss people. He He's very much an ends-justifies-the-means character. I think we're going to get some sort of combination of that, because one thing we do know, Dave Filoni, the showrunner for Ahsoka... Everyone knows the guy who made Star Wars Rebels. Filoni has said he's a huge Legends fan, and he has taken stuff from the Heir to the Empire trilogy and made it canon. So I think he's going to continue that version of Thrawn to a point. I think the Thrawn that we saw in the two canon book trilogies, I think there is going to be some of that influence in there. Yeah. So... John, to answer your question, I think it's going to be a little bit of an amalgamation. I agree uh, completely. Well said. The benefit that canon, that Disney has 
when working with Star Wars now is they get to stand on the tremendous shoulders of legends. And they can essentially pick and choose the things that they want to choose. They can write their own stuff, but they can also pick and choose the things they want out of legends. Um, whether it's characters like the Nogri or Pelion, which we've seen at least a character named Pelion jump up in. Uh, it was Mandalorian, right? The latest season of the Mandalorian. Yes, uh, Pelion was one of the holograms that mm-hmm. uh, Moff Gideon was speaking to. Right, yeah. We don't know if he's going to be the exact same character-ish as Gilad Pelion, at least not that I've seen. But uh, Canon has that ability to pick and choose the things they want to do. They seem like they really like that Air of the Empire trilogy and the creations of Timothy Zahn. So I think we'll see them bringing in at least aspects of characterization or even um, names or even maybe some even events. But I'm excited to see how they do that. Thanks again for the email, John. Now, listener, if you have a question for the show, like Robin or John, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or a tweet at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, you can record an audio question and email it in. Just please record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Stay tuned for the end of the show because... I've received a couple new Star Wars favorite character groupings. It's been about three or four episodes since we've had some of those, so that's very exciting. Matt, it's time for today's book, Edge of Victory 2 Rebirth by Greg Keyes. Are you ready to jump in? Ready, Freddy. Let's do it. Well then, grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Our story today follows five mostly isolated plot lines. It begins on Coruscant, where Luke and Mara Skywalker prepare for the birth of their son. The two relax on an artificial beach when Master Kent Hamner arrives. The Skywalkers welcome Kent, but his visit isn't a social call. He says Chief of State Borskphalia has issued an order for Luke and Mara's arrest, and they have about six hours before it will be served. On the errant venture, Anakin Solo and his best friend, Tahiri Vela, joined the other Yavin 4 Jedi students, jumping around the galaxy, hiding from the Yuzan Vong. Anakin helps Masters Cam Solasar and Tion, training the students as Tahiri recovers from the torture she endured at the hands of heretical Vong shapers Mezon Quad and Nen Yem. But Anakin is restless. He wants to get back into the fight. Corrin Horn is also on the venture in self-imposed exile following the destruction of Ithor. He invites Anakin and Tahiri to join him on a quick supply run to the planet Iriadu. As they leave the Star Destroyer, Corrin reminds Anakin that a Jedi doesn't seek out adventure to stay focused on the mission. This is just a simple supply run. Nothing exciting should happen. Ha. On the Millennium Falcon, Han, Leia, and Jason try to find more allies and safe routes for Luke's Jedi River when they stumble upon a small fleet of Peace Brigade ships. When they're confronted, Han and Leia turn to piracy, stealing back money and supplies Selkor intended for the refugees flooding into the core. Jason's moral values conflict with those of his father, 
But after two debates on the issue, Han's patience reaches its breaking point. I'm the captain of this ship, he tells Jason. If you want to stay on and help your mother and me, you'll follow my orders. And if you can't, you can get off at the next stop. Back on Coruscant, Jaina is approached by Kip Duran, who says that he and his fighter squadron have discovered that the Vong are building a superweapon at Cernpendal. Jaina tells Colonel Gavin Darklighter, who decides to take Kip to see Wedge and Admiral Traced Crefay. The senior officials don't trust the brash Jedi Master, but Kip shows them a hollow of an enormous Yuzhan Vong ship that sucks stellar material from Cernpendal's star. Admiral Crefay is skeptical, but the possibility of destroying a potential Vong superweapon before it's operational is too important to ignore. They agree that trying to gain approval for an attack from the Senate would take too long. The Admiral decides to attack clandestinely, with only what's available to him. Rogue Squadron, Kip's Dozen, and the forces on the Raw Roost. On Ariadu, Corrin heads off to pick up the supplies for Errant Venture and leaves Anakin and Tahiri with the ship. While they wait, the young Jedi sends another Force user in trouble. They leave the spaceport and find a group of Peace Brigade thugs attacking a Rodian Jedi named Kelvis New. Anakin and Tahiri ignite their lightsabers and jump into the mob. The young Jedi deflect dozens of blaster bolts, killing two of the Peace Brigaders and injuring a half dozen more. Eventually, they chase away the mob, but it's too late for New. Before he dies, the Rodian Jedi pulls Anakin close to him and manages to utter one word. Yogdul. On a Yuzhan Vong world ship, Nen Yim struggles to keep the vessel alive. The Shaper Adept was banished to the dying ship after her failure with Tahiri on Yavin 4. Nen Yim discovers the ancient ship cannot be regenerated by traditional shaping methods. To try to save the thousands of Vong on board, Yim decides to secretly return to unconventional methods and commit heresy again. To keep the ship alive. Back on Ariadu, Anakin and Tahiri are taken into custody by authorities and discover they're in league with the Peace Brigade. But Corrin learns where the young Jedi are being held and breaks them out. The trio race back to their ship and escape the system. They try to return to the errant venture, but their shuttle is pulled out of hyperspace by a Dovin Basel mine straight into a Yuzhan Vong shipyard. Their shuttle is spotted by the Vong forces, but the three manage to elude capture by ejecting from the shuttle and landing on a Vong scout ship. The Jedi sneak on board and learn the ship is heading to Yagdul. En route, Anakin, Tahiri, and Korin take control of the ship, and when they arrive at Yagdul, they try to warn the given species about the impending invasion on their planet. When Luke and Mara arrive at the errant venture, Mara falls violently ill. When Master Silgal examines Mara, she discovers the tears of Vergeer that Mara was taking to keep the Coombspore virus within her at bay is harming Mara's unborn son. Mara decides to stop taking the tears, confident she can hold the disease at bay long enough to give birth. Silgal pledges to help Mara fight the Coombspores, but even with their combined efforts, the disease attacks Mara more powerfully than ever. And now at Yagdul, 
The given are initially skeptical of the Jedi's warning and take them into custody in an orbital space station. But they're released when the Yuuzhan Vong fleet arrives. As the Jedi attempt to flee the station, they're stopped by none other than Naminor, who'd been disguised as a given, and a handful of Vong warriors. The Executor orders the warriors to grab the Jedi when Anakin challenges him to single combat. Naminor refuses, much to the disgust of the Vong warriors. Anakin takes advantage of the situation and challenges the commander, Shock Choka, to an honor duel. The huge warrior accepts and advances on Anakin. Choka uses his size to press the attack, pushing the young Jedi back. But it's a ruse. While Anakin allows Choka to slash at him, he swings his lightsaber wildly, cutting a hole in the bulkhead of the station. Just as Anakin opens an escape route, the Given open the station up to vacuum to expel the Vong intruders. Meanwhile, the Millennium Falcon heads to Tatooine. Han meets with Talon Card and learns of a large, supply-laden convoy of Peace Brigaders passing through the system. Han, Leia, and Card plan to ambush the convoy when a Yuzhan Vong battle group arrives, led by Tsavong Law. The War Master offers to let everyone live if they hand Jason over to him. Of course, our heroes have no intention of turning over Jason, but Leia stalls for time, allowing Han to release a cloud of liquid hydrogen from the supplies they've taken. The Falcon blasts the cloud just as it reaches Tsavong La's cruiser. The release of energy overwhelms the cruiser's Dovan basals and allows the Falcon and Card ships to escape. On the dying world ship, Nen Yim finds her blasphemous efforts fruitless. She can't save the ship, at least not with the knowledge available to an adept. Yim needs a master to allow her access to the seventh cortex of Shaper knowledge. She contacts her superiors and begs for assistance. When help arrives, Yim is ecstatic, but her elation fades when Master Shaper K. Quad orders her to start shaping Grutchens. Confused, Yim pleads with K. Quad to help her access the seventh cortex and save the world ship. But it's soon obvious that Quad is insane. He was sent there to mock her over her failure at Yavin 4. Desperate and helpless, Nenyim makes a decision to access the seventh cortex herself to save the ship and to kill K-Quad. As the air leaves the space station above Yogdul, the Given tell Anakin, Tahiri, and Korin where to find some vacuum suits. Corrin stashes Anakin and Tahiri in a locker with an oxygen bottle while he heads off to get the suits. As the young Jedi wait in the locker, they find themselves uncomfortably close. Tahiri chatters away nervously, but Anakin silently looks at his friend. Maybe it's the close quarters. Maybe it's the thinning oxygen. But Anakin reaches out and tilts Tahiri's head up toward his. Squished together in a tight locker, the young Jedi share a kiss and a sweet moment. The kiss surprises both of them. Just as they start to talk about it, Corrin returns with the vac suits. He orders Anakin and Tahiri to put on the suits and follow him to the space dock and find a ship. As the trio heads down the corridor, 
the elder Jedi senses something different in the teenagers. Maybe he shouldn't have left them alone in that locker. Or maybe he should have left them longer. Anyways, Admiral Crefe arrives at Cernpedal and launches their surprise attack. The rogues and Kips doesn't harass Yuzhan Von Coral Skippers while the Ralroost and its picket ships make their way towards the superweapon. And it's enormous. Wedge says it dwarfs the second Death Star. Even with the seriousness of the mission, Jaina is overjoyed to be flying again, and she cuts through the Coral Skippers, blasting them left and right. Jaina emerges from the swarm on the far side of Cernpedal and watches as Crefe's forces destroy the superweapon. Jaina turns to rejoin the rogues when she notices a line of Dovan Basals stretching from Cernpedal to its son. Stunned, Jaina realizes the truth. The superweapon wasn't a superweapon at all. It was a world ship for housing civilians. And the hollow Kip showed her was really the chain of Dovan Basals gathering stellar material to help build the ship. When confronted, Kip admits his deception and says he wanted the Yuzhan Vong to know what it felt like to have its citizenry attacked. Wedge, Gavin, and Admiral Crefe are angry at Kip for lying, but Jaina is furious. She berates Kip for his betrayal, saying she will never forgive him for this. Back on the dying Yuzhan Vong worldship, Nen Yim finally convinces Master K. Quad to give her access to the seventh cortex of the Vong shaping protocols. She's mesmerized by the cortex, but it also reveals a weakness in the protocols. They're set in stone. The Vong never allow themselves to learn anything new. When she emerges from the cortex, Yim is confronted by K. Quad, who suddenly appears much more normal. Quad orders Yim to come with him to answer for her heresies before Supreme Overlord Shimra himself. When they arrive, K. Quad removes his disguise and reveals himself to be Onimi, Shimra's deformed jester. Impressed by her initiative to question the old ways, the Supreme Overlord elevates Yim to Master Shaper and orders her to develop a new eighth cortex in order to find a way to destroy the Jedi and the New Republic. On the errant venture, Mera is on the cusp of succumbing to the virus, and a desperate Luke offers to help her. Luke shares his strength with his wife and their unborn son. Together, the Skywalkers permanently expel the virus from Mara's body. Exhausted but finally healthy, Mara gives birth to a healthy baby boy who they name Ben. The story ends when Anakin returns to the venture. The youngest Solo meets his baby cousin and contemplates the impact of the newest member of the Skywalker line. Time for a break. When we return, Matt and I will talk more about Edge of Victory 2 Rebirth. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. And if you're a fan who'd like to meet other Legends buffs, you can check out Legends Con this September 9th and 10th in Burbank, California. 
LegendsCon is a fan-run convention focused on celebrating the books, comics, games, and other media from the old Star Wars Expanded Universe. And it's hosted by the Legends Consortium, a fan-run organization that wants to bring together fans to celebrate Legends in a positive environment. It will feature vendors, artists, and authors from the old EU, including special guests, Randy Stradley, Matthew Stover, Karina Bechko, Sean Stewart, Barbara Hambley, and Abel G. Pena. LegendsCon is open to all ages and will be held September 9th and 10th, 2023, at the Marriott Convention Center in Burbank, California. Proceeds from the event will be donated to the Peter Mayhew Foundation. Tickets are on sale now through Eventbrite, and you can provide additional support through Kickstarter or coffee.com. For more information on LegendsCon, visit legends-con.com. Check out at legends underscore con on Twitter and Instagram, or at Legends Consortium on Facebook and Tumblr. Once again, that's LegendsCon, coming September 9th and 10th, in Burbank, California. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today, Matt and I are talking about Edge of Victory 2, Rebirth, by Greg Keyes, the eighth book in the New Jedi Order series. Well, Matt, you came up with the majority of the discussion questions for this book. You were really thorough. So I'm going to let you decide where we begin this discussion. What would you like to talk about? Um, what did you think, Aaron, about Keys? As, as I, is, this is Greg Keys's first foray into the Star Wars universe, right? I looked it up before. I don't have the information in front of me, but I think these are the only two novels that he mm-hmm. wrote uh, in the Star Wars universe. What did you think of him as a, as a writer of our beloved Star Wars characters? I would say he's good. I would say he's adequate. Um, <laughs> not Well, I wouldn't put him on the top tier. I wouldn't put him anywhere near the bottom tier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's like the majority of writers in Legends, is that he was given a job, he did the job, the characters felt to me like the characters that we know and love. He got the job of focusing on Anakin Solo in these two books. Definitely in the first book, yeah, uh, Edge of Victory 1, Conquest. From what we know about Anakin in the Junior Jedi Knights series, it's the first time he's kind of a fully formed character. He's about 11 or 12 years old. And he's introspective. Mm-hmm. He's got the weight of his name on him. In these two books, Anakin, I believe, is around 15. I think he's 15 in the first 15, book, Conquest, 16. and he's just turned 16 in Rebirth. The introspection is there, but Keys has expanded on the confidence that is growing within Anakin from what we see in the first handful of books in the New Jedi Order series. And I think he does a good job at that. 
I thought the scene in the locker in this book between Anakin and Tahiri, mm-hmm. where it's two teenagers who are extremely awkward, don't understand the feelings that they're feeling, <laughs> and they share a quick kiss, and then they don't know how to think about that. I think as far as it goes for a Star Wars book, I think it was handled pretty well. It's so and I sweet. think it was handled true to form to a 16-year-old and a 14, almost 15-year-old sharing their first kiss. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. And let me tell you, though, Aaron, as a guy who has a daughter that just turned 14 years old, the dad in me was like, you get away from her, son. You get away from Get out of that locker right now. (laughs) To be fair to Anakin, he didn't put himself in that locker. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. This is on Corrin. You were supposed to be their chaperone. But yeah, I think for the most part, Keyes did a fine job uh, in this book, particularly when it came to the characters. Yeah, yeah. I liked it as well. I thought he excelled as a character writer, and maybe we'll talk about some more of those things. Uh, There were some places where I got a little lost, and I don't know if you did too. I had to reread a bunch of some of the more complicated events that happened in the story. Han's hydrogen trick with the liquid hydrogen, that one had threw me for a loop. I was like, what in the world is going on? I probably read that three times. (laughs) A couple weeks ago, I put a message out on Twitter. Was that what this was talking about? And that was the exact (laughs) scene that it was talking about. I wondered about that. I remembered that tweet. (laughs) I read it three times. You know, this is a common thing for when you're trying to read action sequences because in everyone's brain, they're imagining different things and how a scenario is playing out. It's going to be completely different from the way that Keyes envisioned the scenario as he's writing it. Action scenes to me are the hardest to get the audience to understand exactly what is happening because let's face it in a battle it's chaos Mm -hmm. how do you explain chaos for people to understand what your vision is good point of what is happening Mm -hmm. and yeah that scene was tough and some of the flight sequences for me during the new republic's attack on the quote-unquote super weapon yeah the fight, the uh, dog fighting scenes, mm-hmm. mostly between Rogue Squadron, Kip's Dozen, and the Coral Skippers. Yeah. Some of those were a little difficult to follow where the different fighters were in relation to each other in space. But yeah. Yes, you're right. The, the hydrogen, the liquid hydrogen trick was the most difficult thing to figure out. <laughs> what he was, what he, and, and at one point I finally just said, okay, whatever it was, it worked. Let me just keep going. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny. It just came to me. We uh, The last time I was able to guest with you, um, we were reading a Stackpole book. And, and one of our critiques of that was was the way that Stackpole handled some of the character interactions. Which I thought Keys did a good job of. Stackpole excels at these battle sequences, especially the dogfights. Man, you put those two together, that might be the perfect book, right? Stackpole writing the uh, action sequences and Keys writing characters. It was interesting just balancing those two things out. One of the things that you had mentioned in your notes was the inner scenes of Nenyim and Luke and Mara and how they were a little confusing also. 
to me, I don't think those needed to be very specific. Mm-hmm. The way they're written and the way I envisioned it is almost like a hallucinogenic scene. Really? You can't really explain what's going on. You're just seeing these different visions. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to understand perfectly how, you know, Luke and Mara and Ben's connection expelled this virus. I don't think that Keyes is trying to give us a scientific explanation for how that works, nor does it necessarily require one. Just that it did. And sure. Go with it. Star Wars is not hard science fiction. Right. Yeah. Luke doesn't understand really what's going on. Right. Exactly. The the force is not something there for everyone to understand. Mm -hmm. And even the people that can connect to it and contemplate it, it is this infinite thing that they're never going to fully understand either. So there is a point. What we're saying is where you just got to go, just go with it. Just go with it. (laughs) One question I wanted to ask you about the author. So he wrote both novels in the edge of victory duology but they're structured completely differently Mm -hmm. conquest is almost exclusively the anakin solo story on yavin 4 and we follow anakin almost the entire narrative as you said in this story rebirth and i'm going to date both of us now The story was written just after the 90s. The way they're not intertwined and then intertwined at the end, almost like a Seinfeld episode, just a little (laughs) bit. You got two or three different plot lines, and they finally, they come together like the last two minutes of a Seinfeld episode. I didn't think of it that way, but I like where your head's at. So, well, like I'm saying, completely different structures. Mm -hmm. Did they both work for you? They actually, they worked for me. Yeah, if I had to pick one that I prefer, it's it's getting multiple characters uh, or the multiple arcs um, rather than just sticking with one. Like we talked about at the top of the podcast, um, the fact that we have 19 books means that we can use one of them to focus exclusively on Anakin, like Edge of Victory 1. Um, but I do like seeing the different vignettes of the character arcs. In fact, it took me a minute... I was probably halfway through the book before I realized these aren't touching at all. None of these arcs mean anything to each other at this point until, like you said, at the very, very end, you've got uh, Anakin arriving back on the errant venture where we've got Luke and Mara. And finally, these characters intersect a little bit. Um, but I think I prefer getting getting glimpses of all my favorite characters rather than just to focus on one. How about you? Sure. I think it just depends. I think one of the points of the New Jedi Order series was to get fans acclimated to new characters. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, our heroes from the original trilogy are in middle age. Han is older than middle age. He's in his 60s now. There has to be a new set of characters to continue the fight in the galaxy. And I think that was... I think it's done really well in the New Jedi Order series, even in the first few books where it doesn't focus on them exclusively. Look how much time we spend with the Solo children specifically. We get a lot of Anakin just feeling terrible over the loss of Chewbacca. Sure. We get Jason continually questioning not only himself, but 
the Jedi as an organization and what their role is yeah. in this. I would say, Jaina, maybe you don't get quite as much as those first two in the first eight books of this series. But going forward, you know, there's one book basically devoted to Jaina here coming up mm-hmm. in a few books. There's another book devoted almost completely to Jason coming up here soon. So I like the first book, yeah, Conquest. For sure. Would I prefer, I think, I, I, I do think I agree with you, I would prefer getting multiple points of view the one criticism I think I would have of Rebirth is, like you said, the storylines seemed completely independent of each other. Right. I wish there was at least a little bit of interconnection between right. the storylines. Yeah, agreed. Um, and to your point about introducing us and getting us on board with some of these newer characters, I do like how the new Jedi Order uh, forces, in a natural way, these character combinations that's almost like the older characters holding the younger characters hands and introducing them to us like hey matt here's so and so uh in this book you had anakin and corin two really unlikely character combinations you had jaina and kip for at least part of the story and it was kind of fun to see the young jedi jaina being a little you know um smitten by kip duran at least in the beginning uh, what did you think of some of those character combinations that Keys set up? Yeah, it forces the characters, specifically the solo children, to consider different points of view as they grow older. Mm. They know what their parents and their Uncle Luke have done in this galaxy. You mentioned Corn. Yeah. I know you're a fan of his. I know Jay, one of our other co-hosts, is a big fan. Huge of fan. Favorite. One of his favorite characters yeah. in Legends. Mm-hmm. Well, he's back. He's been gone for a few books. He's been in exile for a few books. What was it like for you uh, seeing Corn back? I thought it was. I thought it was a good time to have him return. He was kind of in that self-imposed exile, <laughs> thinking he was doing the Jedi a favor by doing so. And you and I have talked about that. In fact. His last appearance was the last time I guessed it on the on the podcast with you. So that's kind of cool that we got him going out and we got him coming back in together. I like yeah, I that. think he was mentioned in a couple others, but yeah, like you said, he he wasn't actually in the books. Yeah, at least a you know a, a major player. Um, you know, he comes back and he is the mentor figure for Anakin, as you mentioned. Um, these Edge of Victory books really are about. Anakin Solo, as you also mentioned, and I think that's very astute of you to say so. I would have loved to have seen where Corrin is at emotionally in this book. How is he feeling now about what happened at Ithor? Has enough time passed? You know, how is he reconciling all of what has occurred? Um, and how is he feeling sitting on the sti- sidelines? It feels like what we get from Corrin is just a very stoic character who's steady who's gonna help get Anakin to where he needs to get him um, and I feel like we really didn't get to dig into the character of Cornhorn. I love treatment of characters in books I know my co-host on Davos Fingers Scott does as well and he talked about that in his last episode with you 
And I really feel like we didn't get to see that as much from Corrin. That's possibly because this is Anakin's book and we're focusing more on him and his point of view. And maybe what Corrin was putting out to Anakin was the very stoic, confident father figure. But I did miss that a little bit. How about you? What did you think of the return of Mr. Horn? I thought it was fine. I'm admittedly not as big a, a fan of Corrin as you or Jay are. I will say I think that might be a product of the way he's portrayed in this book coming back might be a product of Greg Keyes being the author. If Stackpole was the author, while it may have been Anakin's book, we would have gotten plenty <laughs> of Corrin's inner dialogue. We're going to go straight to that line of supporting uh, character, main character of Corrin. He, he loves we, we Oh, it's his OG. We we would have gotten we would have gotten at least fifty pages of Corin's thought processes, and 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 him remembering his uh, father who passed away too young. Um, I, I I joke. We joke. We joke. But it is the way Stackpole writes Corin. It's it's like when you're having that conversation with somebody and you're talking about something and they keep coming back to the same topic. And so finally you're just like, I can tell that's what you want to talk about. So just go ahead. Just get it all out. Just tell me what you're thinking, man. Yeah. The the one thing, uh, well, uh, completely aside from this book, but since we're on the topic of Let's the way Stackpole writes Corin, um, I Jedi is the one that really soured me on it. For sure. Um, For sure. But, but but the one that the one instance that really made me start turning on Corin, you know, because at the very beginning of the Rogue Squadron books, you know, okay, we got a new lead character. He's this brash X-wing pilot who's a former security officer. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool. cool. And I got to figure out a way to say this because you know we are a family show here on the Legends Lounge. But it's a scene in I think. It's the Kratos trap mm-hmm. where Corin and Mirax are about to spend the night together for the very first time. Share an intimate moment. And in the moment right there, Corin thinks, what would my dad think about this? <laughs> and just that. And you're and like, right there, oh. that, that was, I was like, I was like, okay, okay. I need a break. Yeah, this is. <laughs> and then I started analyzing everything after that with, with Corin's inner monologues. And I was like, ah, this guy is a little bit insufferable. I just, it's. <laughs> you need a break. <laughs> yeah, just tone it down a little bit, Stackpole. Just a little. Right. Just a little. Yeah. Well, I suppose then you probably maybe liked a little more how Corin was in these books. It was less about the inner monologues. It was more just about him supporting Anakin and therefore Tahiri as well, right, as kind of the elder statesman Jedi of the trio. Absolutely. And like I said before, I think the ultimate purpose of the New Jedi Order book is to show the next generation of heroes right, and how they're going to handle different galactic crises going forward Mm -hmm. so i think they are supposed to be the focus of these stories not so much the heroes that you and i both know and love from the original trilogy i mean luke skywalker is always going to be right there with darth vader as you know my two favorite characters 
But at some point, Luke Skywalker is going to have to move aside in his role of mentor and allow the next generation of Jedi to take over is the wrong word, but you know what I mean, to kind yeah. of take over. Take the, the reins. of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's your world now, kids. One character I know both of us love, our boy Borsk. We get a little <laughs> bit of Borsk in this. Not as much as I want, but we do get a little bit of Borsk in this. Um, and, of course, the main thing, hey, Luke, Mara, I'm issuing a warrant for your arrest. You got six hours to get out of Dodge. The, the cool part about Borsk is he's playing both sides and he's both good at it and bad at it at the same time. Mm, explain. Well, the best character at playing both sides is Palpatine. We sure. saw Palpatine's arc through the prequel trilogy. Borsk does some of the same things in order to acquire more power personally. And just before the New Jedi Order, Borsk is elected Chief of State. He's now the highest serving officer in the New Republic government. Mm -hmm. But unlike Palpatine, Borsk's throne sits on a stack of cards. Hmm. None of the other political figures really believe that the decisions Borsk has been making is good for the government or the galaxy as a whole, just that it's good enough for Borsk. Anyone but and they Borsk, are just, yeah. mm-hmm. they are just waiting for him to make the one decision that's bad for them to where they'll all just turn on him. Right. And you can see sooner or later Borsk, Borsk's downfall is just going to go. It's like, um, again, I'm going to date us. Borsk's character arc is like the mountain climber game from The Price is Right. He's slowly going up, going up, going up, going up. But once he gets there, it's going to go straight down. It's absolutely going to go straight down. I like that. Your metaphor game is strong today, Aaron. Well done. Uh, Good point about Thalia uh, and him being the only... Yeah, the, the decisions that he makes are for Thalia. And boy, is it a common representation maybe of our government of just waiting for that head guy to make one single mistake so that you can jump all over him and eat him up. Um, Publicly, he has been steadfastly against the Jedi in this series. Right. But he doesn't actually want to take any action against the Jedi. You you know what I mean? Here, he issues the warrant for Luke and Mara's arrest, but he doesn't want to actually arrest them. He just wants them to leave Coruscant. But he can't come and tell them, hey, leave Coruscant, or he's going to upset the political faction that has put him in power who actually does want him to take some sort of stand against the Jedi. Exactly. He does that little wink-wink scene at the end when talking to Luke via hologram, talking about the plausible deniability that he would have if Mara and Luke flee and, you know, if they happen to kind of continue their fight against the Vong, well, then he would know nothing about it because they fled. Wink, wink. Um, you know, when Phalia is written best, you want to hate him, but he does just enough to keep you from hating him. 
You know, there was that scene earlier in the New Jedi Order series where he was aboard, was it the Raw Roost? I don't remember what capital ship he was on, but he was kind of just there. Yeah, because I believe, I don't think it's, I think it's his cut. I think Admiral Creefe is his cousin. Yeah. Correct? Uh huh. They're really. Yeah, I think he does go on the Raw Roost to speak to his cousin. Uh, yeah, the Raw Roost then. And, you know, in the middle, in the midst of the wartime battle situation, Phalia steps up and helms one of the doesn't helm but he mans one of the stations and does it well you know and and is injured doing so you know he steps up and is the minor hero in that moment or here with luke and mara where he's kind of winking at him and saying you know i recognize the value that you bring to this whole yuzhan vong situation and i you know if it comes to having the greatest jedi in the galaxy in jail or maybe even dead as some of the anti-jedi sentiment is pointing to I'd rather have you fighting behind the scenes and doing your own thing and helping us out here. So when Phalia is written well in the Legends series, it makes it hard to hate him, but you still roll your eyes constantly at him. He is one of the two or three characters that I still want to see make the leap from Legends to canon. I think he could. upcoming Ahsoka show... In the trailer, you see the hologram of her speaking to, or I'm sorry, you see the hologram of Hera speaking to some of the members mm-hmm. of the New Republic government. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we can get some governmental scenes with Borsk Phalia there, just as a foil like to Mon Mothma we in setting one. up the government. You got to have a political we foil. One. We need one. Yep. And, and I don't want one that's severely underrepresented in the uh, in, in still haven't in seen them canon. still haven't seen what they look like. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know exactly what they look like. I always have this picture in my head of sort of like a cross between a horse and a panther for some reason. <laughs> they do kind of have these horses features and, and the images that we ha- have out there in Legends kind of vary. They're not all consistent, but. But if they if they do bring Borsk into canon and we do see him, I don't want him to be this politician that just everyone absolutely hates. Mm-hmm. I want him to be smarmy, you know. He wants slimy, but with this little bit of delightful quality Charm. to him that yeah. you you love to hate him instead mm-hmm. of just hating him to hate him well no one you gets know? that far and even in politics without having some likable quality exactly so, yeah we need to we need to like him in some to, to reference way that your po- to reference your podcast kind of like little finger a little bit like little finger mm, yeah where it's like you secretly like hanging out with this guy you know <laughs> They push just, the just, right buttons. Yeah, just don't push the wrong button or you'll never hang out with this guy again. For sure. Probably because something bad has happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, can we talk Kip Duran for a minute? Sure. I love the way that we're handling Kip. You know, we're talking about characters like Phalia where there's parts that you like and part you just simply hate. Um how are you feeling about Kip Duran and the part that he's playing in the new Jedi Order series? I like his role, but unlike Borsk Failure, like we were just talking about, after the 
Jedi Academy trilogy where we're introduced to Kip mm-hmm. and the things that happen in those stories. I'm not a fan of the character for the most part. However, as I said, I do appreciate the role he is playing in this story of showing a Jedi of action because that is something that many people think of when they see a Jedi. You know, I mean, let's face it. Anakin Skywalker was a Jedi of action, Mm -hmm. you know? Not to say Mm -hmm. it was right or wrong, but he was actually doing something. It is the antithesis of Jason Solo so far in the New Jedi Order series. Correct. Where Jason, at least for the first handful of books, was almost so conflicted about the role of the Jedi that he was stationary. Right. He was a character that couldn't do anything because he was wrapped up in his own head. Kip is much more like Anakin Skywalker, where I see wall, I run through wall. You know, (laughs) that's what it is. With the best of intentions, I completely acknowledge that what Kip is doing is for the good of the galaxy. Now, is it the way a Jedi should be acting? Maybe, but definitely the deception in this story is not something a Jedi should do. Correct. Yeah, it's it's super dark sidey, man. It's super dark sidey. Like the way he manipulated Jaina, um, he knew. He knew that she was kind of having these, not that she had like a super big crush on him where she was going to pursue it. There's an age gap there that's kind of creepy. Um, uh, let's see, Jedi Academy trilogy. He was a teenager. Uh, Kip is like 16, 17 and that, and this would take place, uh, I would say Kip's probably mid-30s, like right around 35-ish, 36-ish. Enough to still be and, creepy for me. Yep. Yeah, Jane is like, I think Jane is 17, about to turn 18. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if they say they she had her, her birthday or whatever at this point. But um, he knows he knew what he was doing. And he kind of implied that she could be his apprentice and all of this stuff. That manipulation is like Palpatine light almost in my mind. It's not it's not to that level, but he's playing her and playing on her feelings to get what he wants. And what he wants, while for quote unquote the greater good, is still pretty awful. Um to to take the fight to civilians, right? Exactly. Like I said, the actions he takes in this book are definitely not what you want to see in mm-hmm. a Jedi. Agreed. I, I think the reason the character as a whole has never appealed to me, like you said, the manipulations are very dark side esque We already know that Kip fell to the dark side back in the Jedi Academy trilogy. Mm-hmm. I, I have an issue sometimes in Star Wars of and this is Star Wars as a whole, not just specific to legends or canon, but Star Wars as a whole. Mm-hmm. I sometimes have an issue with the redemption arc stories where it doesn't seem to me as though 
characters that want to be redeemed for the bad things that they have done are working for it. Sure. Kip never seems to me like he's working to try to show that he has changed. It doesn't seem to me like he has changed. And it's one of the reasons, as much as I love Luke Skywalker, it's one of the reasons why I don't think Luke is that good of a Jedi Master when it comes to training other people. Really? Yeah. It, should, should Kip still be like this after... <laughs> what are you, you know, keeping this guy around for? Exactly. <laughs> that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. How, how many right. chances is Luke going to give him? <laughs> Oh, man, maybe it's like at least if I keep him close, I've got some sort of leash. I don't know. (laughs) um, I tell you what, I like these early morning recording sessions. We are just going off on some of these people. Oh, there's no mercy for some of them. Kip has some sort of quality that's likable because Han Solo is just tremendously loyal to him still, too. He he thinks he's great. So, yeah, Kip Duran's an interesting character. And, I, you know... As you as you're saying all this, I do like it. I do like that we don't have all these characters that go from black to white in terms of dark side, light side. That we have a guy that did something awful, and you know he's he's now doing things for quote unquote the greater good. You know he is out with Kip's dozen, and they're brash about the way they do things. But they were fighting evil, you know. Whether it, no matter sure. how they did it. Um, and so you kind of get that. these guys that do good things, but they're still kind of jerks. And yeah, and I that part I like. Mm-hmm. I like the gray characters. I mean, we can argue all day about. Well, I know the gray topic when it pertains to Jedi is a little taboo in Star Wars, sure. which is fine. Gray characters, absolutely love. And as I said. I do like some aspects of Kip. I like that Kip is a character of action. action. I like that. I like that Kip is trying to fight back against this invasion. The one aspect of Kip that I have never liked is it does not seem that he is even that remorseful for falling to the dark side of the force. Because he continues to dabble in it. Exactly. I'm not saying that he needs to be a choir boy because he doesn't. He should be conflicted. Mm -hmm. But in that conflict, he should be making the correct decision. Honestly, at this point in the story, Kip should be more like Jason, where he's so concerned about what decision is correct that he's almost hamstrung himself or handcuffed himself good point to not being able to make decisions yeah having those thoughts of like oh man you know this is this is the types of things that maybe i was feeling and before i knew it i was blowing up a planet maybe i should tone this down a little bit you know having some self-reflective moments and acknowledging some of these feelings that's a good point i like that in star wars as a whole in big star wars the whole saga I'm not sure they've done redemption arcs that well myself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the few, one of the very few is in a book that, you know, you and I make fun of all the time. Legends fans always make fun of, (laughs) you know, it's a goofy book. It's the courtship of Princess Leia. I love the courtship of Princess Leia for 
as goofy as it is. It is. It's problematic. It's goofy. But there's a charm to it, right. almost. Uh-huh. It is one of the very few books, though. The Night Sisters are introduced there. They are different than the Night Sisters that we see in canon in yes. the Clone Wars animated show and going forward. However, there is a Night Sister that turned away from the dark side. And she is trying to atone for what she did mm-hmm. when she fell. And I think that is done really well. Good point. In that. Yeah, I know who you're talking I about. Think, I think that some of that, we've already talked about how Filoni was a fan of Legends. I think some of that may have been the foundation for the one other redemption arc that is pretty good, in my opinion, and that's Ventress's redemption mm. arc in the Clone Wars and then in her canon story. Mm-hmm. Um, why am I just forgetting what is the that, story's name is now? Is that Dark Disciple? Um, Dark Disciple, yeah. yeah. For some reason it just... But yes, you are that correct. Was... One of the last questions I have here okay. is Nenyim going forward. We finally have met the Supreme Overlord, Shimra. A lot of the stuff we've seen from the Yuzhan Vong in the first half of this saga is how any new way of thinking is heretical in their society. That all information, all knowledge is handed down by the gods. So that's all that there is. Well, Shimra took notice of what Mezon Quad and Nen Yim were doing on Yavin 4, trying to break a Jedi and turn a Jedi into someone who thought she was a Yuzhan Vong. A little bit heretical. And he's like, look, I've figured out that what we're doing isn't working completely because we do not understand the Jedi. We do not understand the Force. We have to figure out another way. Nenyim, I'm going to let you go ahead and dabble again and try to come up with new information that we can use against the Jedi. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that going forward? Because we're not quite halfway, and that might be something that is important as the saga goes forward. I think it's going to be huge as the in the saga going forward. At least it should be. You know, we've gotten, we're eight, nine books in, and we've kind of fallen into this stalemate of the Yuzhan Vong just being the Yuzhan Vong, and they're powerful enough to make headway in the galaxy, but the New Republic is starting to figure things out and ways to, you know, halt that a little bit, if not expel them completely. And so it had kind of, it you almost found yourself getting a little bored with the Yuzhan Vong. This just, that's just the way they are because they don't change and they're not open to trying new things. Um, so I put in our notes here that in terms of story and moving this plot forward, this might be the most into the most um, impactful part of rebirth is what Nen Yim's doing here uh, in a book where you don't have a ton of major events that happen. You know, you've got Ben Skywalker's birth, which is huge. You've got Tahiri and Anakin's relationship kind of kicking off. But in terms of implications for future, Nem Yim 
getting to this point where she kind of gets an investment from Shimra. It's almost like Shark Tank where they, they say, we'll give you this much money and you go do what you do, you know. Um, Nem Yim gets to go and, and try some new things and figure some stuff out that the New Republic and the Jedi aren't being prepared for. That could be huge for the story going going forward and for the Yuzhan Vong. Well, Matt, before we wrap up, uh, I have two Star Wars character squadrons to read this week. I love these. The first comes from a listener who goes by Lego Ginger Productions on YouTube and sent in a fighter squadron that they named Scion Squadron. Here it is. Scion 1, the leader, is Antok Merrick. Scion 2, gold leader from the original trilogy, John Vander. Dang. Scion 3, in support, Biggs Darklighter, and Scion 4, also in support, Wedge Antilles. Scion 5, the troop transport, is the U-Wing from Rogue One with K2SO and Bodhi Rook. Scion 6 is a freighter, the Ghost from Rebels, and the command ship for this squadron is Home 1. What a well-rounded group there. I had to look up Antok Merrick. I knew I'd heard the name, but I couldn't remember from where, so... Blue leader from Rogue One. Yeah, nice pull. Nice pull. Um, <clears throat> we've got a second group from listener Waylon who put together his Star Wars heist team. These are a lot of fun. Team leader, you've got Lenori Brock from Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void, one I haven't read yet. Um, as our hacker, we have Dr. Afra. Very good. As infiltrators, or as our infiltrator, Night Sister Marin who's from Jedi Fallen Order and the Jedi Survivor video games. As our getaway driver, you got to have one Grease Drydus in the Stinger Mantis with Cal Kestis, Seer Junda, uh, Bodhi, and Kata Akuna. And then you got to have enforcers. So we got Dinjarin with Din Grogu. Aerial support is Bo-Katan and Koska Reeves. And the employer, the guy behind the scenes, is Saw Gerrera. Thank you very much for the squadrons, Waylon and Lego Ginger Productions. Now, listener, if you have a favorite Star Wars character grouping, send it in. I love reading them. Also, if you have a comment about something we've talked about on the show, or if you have a question, you can email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Well, wrapping up here, Matt, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I always have such a great time talking Star Wars with you, even if it means, like you said, just going to absolute town on Cornhorn and Kipter on. We ripped, we ripped Luke pretty well today, too. We did, I mean, a, we did a pretty savage job today. <laughs> Maybe we need to do more of these, like you said, early morning recording sessions. <laughs> you always cut down the people you love. That's what it <clears throat> it's is. true. It's out of love. It's out of love. Except for Kip. I don't really love him, but. <laughs> well, Matt, if listeners would like to contact you or check out your podcast, Davos Fingers, how can they do that? Uh, you'll find me mostly on um, Twitter at Thack Attack. Um, uh, our podcast is called Davos Fingers on Twitter at Davos Fingers, where we uh, reread and cover the A Song of Ice and Fire series by George R.R. R. Martin, maybe more... Uh, well known as Game of Thrones, the the show that the books are or that is based on the books. But we'd love to have you over there. Check us out there. 
Coming up on the next episode, K2 will be back and we'll be discussing Star by Star by Troy Denning, the book that changes everything in the new Jedi Order series. You can look forward to that episode coming up on August 4th. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge today. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.